Hey, this is Jad, Radiolab. I'm going to replay an episode that we made back in 2018 because um, it's a good one, first and foremost. And also, we got some pretty surprising coronavirus-related updates to it, which we're going to share near the end of the episode. So first, here's the original, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit. Oh, wait, you're listening. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radiolab. Radio Lab. from WNYC. Yep. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Quilwich. Oh, Brittany Beach or uh, no, no, Pick, going Pickering, Pickering Beach. Pickering Beach. Yeah. Pickering Beach. Go down 13. Mm-hmm. You're gonna see this. You're gonna see the store on the, on the right hand. You'll see a liquor store on the right hand side. You make a. You're gonna make a left. That's Bowers. Actually, it's Bowers Beach. And this. Oh, it's called Bowers Beach. Is reporter Latif Nasser. Okay, okay, okay. You, go to, you don't want to go further. Okay, than... so three years ago, three or four years ago, I taken the bus down to Delaware and I stayed in this crappy hotel and then woke up like super early, like five a.m., still dark out, to hop in this cab. Oh, I'm. You have got me really excited, let me no, tell well, that's you. The place to go. I had just started working at Radiolab. This is like my first uh, first time I'd been sent out to like to just go out and get tape. You talk to anybody. They'll tell you. Anybody that lives on that beach will be glad to talk to you. Awesome. Awesome. And the whole reason oh, why I, I, I was headed down to this beach was to record myself okay. communing with a horseshoe crab. Have you ever held one, Alexis? Have you ever? Uh, I've never held one in my hands. I would love to hold one in my hand. Oh, yeah, uh, Robert, you sound very far away. Why I know. It's it, this, turn is, that is it microphone this one again? Mm-hmm. Okay, no, just I'm... to explain, uh, we sent Latif down to that beach. I never knew it could be like this. Because a few weeks earlier, all right, everybody say something. Hello, hello, hello. Robert and I had sort of fallen into this rabbit hole. Hello. Uh, we'd spoken with a guy named Alexis Madrigal. Yep who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. How did you get onto horseshoe crabs? Where did that start for you? Uh, um, I, it was late at night, and I was reading through the site where all these crazy press releases are published called EurekaAlert.com. And I happened to see this really <laughs> tiny study, which had the unpromising name, Sublethal Behavior and Physiological Effects of the Biomedical Bleeding Process on the American Horseshoe Crab, Limulus polyphemus. <laughs> And I thought, this is going to be my big story this year. (laughs) And then I went um, and I did that thing that we do now, you know, horseshoe, crab, and then Google images. And uh, there on the screen, according to Alexis, he saw these pictures of a bunch of horseshoe crabs kind of propped up on these metal racks. And they were all kind of tied in place. They were all in a row. And they all had these thin little plastic tubes coming out of their shells. All of them. And underneath them are what look like kind of a two-liter bottle. And there's blue blood in it. Blue? Like baby blue blood. And and what was just so fascinating is the strange blood. It turns out to be the least interesting part of the story. Like, at, at some level, like, it's just the visual that draws you in. Because inside their strange blood, the horseshoe crabs have a kind of superpower. It's one that has helped them survive hundreds of millions of years as the Earth has changed, as other species have come and gone. And it hasn't just been saving their butts. It's been saving ours for decades. Nearly all of modern medicine would not be possible without this special little thing in their blood. But it might all be about to change. Oh, wow. Oh, and even over there. One thing that it does that is really cool is it like has a a prom, a sex prom every spring. Oh, you know what we should do? We should all go together. Oh. Isn't it like in it's a few the fir- months? It's, the, it's, it's in June, and it's on the first full go. moon of June. Alexis, you want to go? I do want to go. <laughs> Let's go. Which is where I come in. Test, 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 test. Right, because it, it ended up being that Robert and Alexis and I actually couldn't go. And then it was like, oh, okay, then send the, send the new guy, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, at the time, it was like you were just milling around the office, and you looked like maybe you needed an adventure. So we were like, hey, do you want to go see these crabs? Like, see the sex prom? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, business in front, <laughs> stubby in the back. 
So anyway, so I go, and then when I got there, it was still pretty early, like maybe six, seven in the morning. It was a little bit rainy, but when you walked down the beach, it was just littered in, in probably thousands of horseshoe crab. This is what a horseshoe crab sounds like. Yeah, there's, there's kind of no way to hear it. <laughs> but just so we get a visual, like what does a horseshoe crab look like? It's kind of like a semicircle, and then there's kind of like this French shieldy part, and then there's the tail and a. Um, I would call it a scuttling catcher's mitt. Yeah, yeah, not it does bad, look good. not bad. So there were these hordes of scuttling catcher's mitts, uh, you know, scuttling around, and uh, they they actually move really slowly. A lot of them had been knocked upside down by the waves, and you could see their soft underbelly. They have these ten. Um, lobster-like legs, and, and and then walking around them were um, does anyone want any gloves? Cold. It's bloody freezing. a bunch of people. Somebody stepping on a horseshoe crab was that one dead. Oh. Many of them were from a big pharmaceutical company, which will make sense in a second. But I'm Glenn. my guide for this morning on the beach was a guy named Glenn. Oh, Glenn. Glenn Govery, thin guy, short hair, uh, wearing socks and sandals. Um, and I'm the founder and director of the Ecological Research and Development Group. And also, is is it true? I saw. I think I saw on your resume that you were in the Air Force. I was. Uh, I was. I was an air traffic controller. And uh, the first time I saw horseshoe crabs was in 1969 when I was stationed at Dover Air Force Base, which is right nearby. Being a young guy and coming down to the beach looking for something that might be going on, and I saw horseshoe crabs. Oh, wow. Um, it wasn't until many years later that I kind of looped around into this thing, but that was the first time I saw them. Sort of saw some horseshoe crabs and kind of weirdly fell in love with them and, and became really their, like, champion. No, uh, they're not all that attractive unless you've been around them a while. I find them quite beautiful. So you, but... you now, you... Glenn now leads these, you know, educational tours of horseshoe crabs, especially at, at this time of the year. And he walked me up and down the beach, uh, painstakingly explaining to me the rules of the, you know, of the sex prom. Look at them. The larger ones are females. So there's a male. At one point, he pointed out two crabs that were stuck together. So that guy that's attached to that female, that's his gal now. They were like locked to one another, stuck upside down. Which makes it harder for them to right themselves. Like right now, the surface is rough enough where if they were separate, there's a good chance it would flip them over and they'd be okay. But because he's hanging in there, the likelihood of that happening becomes more remote. But he'll die with her. Like a, this is like a blockbuster romance here. This is like... Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, you had to go back to remember Burt Lancaster on the beach, you know. I forget what movie that was. I never knew it could be like this. Where the, the waves are crashing over, and that was symbolic of the romance. And they were both in bathing suits, you know, embracing one another. And... Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. Nobody? So we, we've kind of got a, a, an animal world version of that going on on the yeah, beach I, right I, I think so. And Glenn's romantic eye just painted this sex orgy as a beautiful, flowering, like uh, mating season, like spring in nature, kind of a beautiful thing. Oh my gosh, that. But, um, but I realized really quickly was like... What is in, are those like maggots? What are those? Oh, that's gross. The reality of it was kind of horrifying. Is that a threesome? There'd be, like, piles of crabs trying to have sex with each other. How that works. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Big trains of them all hooked together. And they would be, like, going in the wrong direction all the time. Like, what is going on here? You'd see, like, one crab in the middle, like a female, like a bigger one. So he's got his claws gripping. And then three or four males, like, all trying to mate with this one crab at the same time. Damn. And then when you look even closer... This guy alive? It turned out the female crab was dead. Oh, man, that's so gross. Like this weird, like, necrophiliac foursome of crabs. Uh, it was, it was, it was kind of raunchy, actually. Oh, my glasses are getting all, uh, yeah, all... But while I was standing watching all this, you know, hurly-burly of crab sex, I was struck by what I think is one of the central questions of this story. Because it's almost impossible not to notice that... No, it looks like there's pieces missing. Oh, a lot of holes. Yeah, but he's alive. A lot of these horseshoe crabs are really banged up. Oh, 
Oh, yeah, it goes right through. Like chunks of their shells are missing, their eyes are missing. Yeah, you wouldn't think if someone had a hole in their head that size, they'd right. just be walking around, right. no big deal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Some of them, they have holes that you could see their legs underneath. That is and they're all just fine. They just have all these kind of crazy, what would seem to be fatal injuries, but they're all just kind of walking around like it's no big deal. Just consider it on the species level. So, like, like here's a creature that has lasted hundreds of millions of years. It outlasted the dinosaurs and the asteroid that killed them. It outlasted freezing oceans. It so far has survived the industrial age of humans. And you look at it and you're like, how? What's its secret? And it turns out that part of the answer to that has to do with that baby blue blood. This is Alexis Madrigal again. So our blood is red because hemoglobin is rich in iron, right? And their blood is blue because it's rich in copper. So their molecule that carries oxygen for them is called hemocyanin. But what's really interesting about this blood is this chemical system of slowing down bacteria. So say you're a horseshoe crab, and in your blood, there's a little bit of bacteria. Maybe it got through in a crack in your shell. Anyway, in your blood are these cells. Called amoebocytes. These oval cells that are sort of on patrol in the bloodstream. And when they encounter... A particular kind of bacteria. The amoebocytes, these oval cells... Excrete this substance called coagulogen which does exactly what it sounds like. The area around where the intruders are, just like, boop, turns into this, like, jelly stuff. That bacteria that snuck in... It traps them. Like a grape trapped in a bowl of jello. Wow. wow. And that crack in the shell, the amoebocytes, seal that off too. And what does it do with the gel then? Does it poop it out or something? Then it, then it can actually attack the cells once they've been slowed down. Oh, yeah. so it, it, it blobs the invader and then immobilizes right. it, and then some other uh, defense defenders come and in. And they can take it out. Take right. it out. Oh, I see. And this superpower fighting its tiny battles in the bodies of these rather plain-looking creatures. Had you touched one of these guys before? No, first time. First time? How does okay. it feel? Is the reason why people from pharmaceutical companies were on the beach that day. It's one of those things you live your whole life, yeah. and you have no idea... How would you? Because this thing that's been playing out for literally millions of years, one day... Humans started to catch on to this. And one human in particular... Good morning. To explain... We're going to leave the horseshoe crab... Just for a minute. ...and talk a little bit about injectable drugs. That scientist and innovator James Cooper... Any relation to James Fenimore Cooper of the... Uh... Like the last of the Mohicans guy? Cooper? No, his name is James Fenimore Cooper. He was named after James Fenimore Cooper, and his son is also named James Fenimore oh, Cooper. Wow. Wow. Um, but anyway... But anyway, this James Fenimore Cooper told us that while it was a total miracle when injectable drugs like morphine came onto the scene, it was also a bit of a nightmare because... They didn't know about bacteria. Occasionally, the fluids they were injecting would become contaminated. As soon as they'd inject this materials, the patients get infections and develop terrible fevers. Or even die. They can be incredibly uh, dangerous to us. And so to make sure these drugs were free of bacteria that caused fevers, they didn't just, you know, try it on a person and see if they died. They checked it on a rabbit. And they would have, like, like racks and racks of rabbits, like 24 rabbits in a rack. They are restrained by the neck. Rather loosely. I mean, like a pilgrim being punished in the town square? Exactly right. And then they'd take a little sample of the thing they wanted to inject into a person, and then they would inject that into the rabbit's ear. And if there's certain kinds of bacteria present, the rabbits will get a fever. Their temperature will go up. And the way they measured their temperature was with these electric thermometers up their bums. So if the rabbit's temperature goes up, we know we shouldn't put this drug inside a person. But if there's no temperature spike... This solution is safe to inject into man. Or woman, or children, or really anyone. So that's how crude it was. And it turns out this test wasn't really that reliable either, because rabbits are, like, pretty sensitive. So even if sometimes they'll, like, see a new person and they'll get scared and then they'll just have a fever because of that. <laughs> so it was really, it was not a great test. Not great for us especially not great for the rabbits. 
after they would go through a few tests, sometimes even after only one, they just, they kill them. Oh, no. Enter Rabbit Hall of Famer, James Fenimore Cooper. My joke is that I love to talk to rabbits because they're all ears, Uh, you know. (laughs) Anyway, back in the late 60s, Cooper was a grad student at Johns Hopkins University. And one day, one of his professors came up to him in in the hall or wherever. And kind of jokingly, maybe somewhat seriously, says, Cooper, if you want to get out of this uh, institution with your degree, uh, you're going to need to find a way to test for pyrogens by something other than the rabbit. Basically, find a better way. That was sort of a joke, although I think he meant some of it. (laughs) Lucky for Cooper, around the same time, this other professor at his university, Dr. Levin, had just come out with a paper on how horseshoe crab blood could theoretically be used to test for bacteria in people. And hearing Dr. Levin present about it, Dr. Cooper sat back in his chair and was like, wait a second. Oh, What if we use the horseshoe crab blood to test our drugs. Would it be possible then to take this test and adapt it to test drug products? Then we wouldn't have to kill all of those rabbits. So they got together, made the test work, and... As soon as we made that publication in 71, then the pharmaceutical industry jumped right on it. And so this particular chemical substance... This coagulogen in the horseshoe crab blood... ...actually became a major part of the way that we test things that we're going to inject into our bodies. In every hospital, as you walk down the uh, the corridor, you look in a room, there's an IV bag hanging. Surgical instruments on a tray. Injectables for pain, infections. Your dad's pacemaker. Cancer chemotherapy. Your grandma's new hip. Oh. Your kid's EpiPen. Ah. Immunization shots. All of these things have been tested with this material, this this uh, test that we're able to do using this chemical that we extract from horseshoe crabs. This 450 million year old species. Wow. Yeah, but in order to to do all of that, in order to actually, you know, keep our medicines safe. They actually have to go out every year and and drain horseshoe crab blood. Seriously? They have to keep doing this all every year? Yeah, they go out, they get the crabs every year, they drain their blood and then they go put them back out into the ocean. It's like a like a like a like a horseshoe crab blood drive. And the the whole I mean it's there are a bunch of companies that do this and the whole industry is worth, you know, like tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> And so I really, really wanted to see this all in action. Like, I wanted to go to one of these bleeding facilities. After the break, uh, Latif and a very special guest will do just that. They will infiltrate, so to speak, one of these bleeding facilities and witness the baby blue blood drive firsthand. That's coming up. Science Reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This is Radio Lab. We're back with Latif Nasser reporting on horseshoe crabs and the scientists who love them, or at least love their uh, very valuable blood. And maybe them too, but mostly their blood. And therein lies the rub. So there are basically like, I think, four or five companies that go out, find horseshoe crabs, and then extract their blood. And I wanted to see, like, what does it look like? So I sent out a few emails, and then I was emailing these companies for like three years, and nobody ever returned my emails. I don't know why. Maybe they didn't want bad press, or I don't know, maybe they weren't bleeding that year, or whatever. And so I'd basically given up on the story. But then this year, these folks at one of the companies called Charles River Laboratories, they were like, hey, why don't you just come down to Charleston, South Carolina, and watch what we do here? So I went. You're just so rolling. I'm, I'm rolling. You're rolling. Well, let me double check. And along with me, I brought... Dust, dust, dust. Lulu. Hey, how's it going? Lulu Miller. You guys shine the horseshoe crab signal on the moon, and I come <laughs> running. Lulu Miller is a former Radio Lab staffer. Actually, she is the first Radio Lab staff member, uh, besides myself and Robert and Ellen. And uh, she is a co-creator of NPR's Invisibilia. 
Weird. How did you get in on this? I weirdly have had affection for these creatures my whole life. I like grew up with them. They're some of my first memories. What do you remember seeing? I, I remember seeing what I thought was a crab. I was like probably three or four I'm on the beach with my parents in Cape Cod where we've gone my whole life. And, and I just remember walking on the beach and seeing this like massive crab, you know, a third of the size of my body basically. And I remember <laughs> kind of jumping back and my dad saying, oh, pick it up, poke at it, you know, interact. And so I kind of turned it over and I saw all those claws and I got scared. And then he, you know, he showed me it wasn't alive. It was a molt. Oh. And he explained what a molt was, that there had been a crab in there and it slid out and now was this perfectly intact skin of what it used to be. And you wonder like, well, where is it now? And what's it doing now? And do I ever leave a self behind? I don't know. It was just little and I thought it was cool. And we we brought it back to our porch. I remember that. It sat on our porch for years. And like the dog would okay, sniff so at it. Where are we going? It was just, ever since then, it's just been a like mild poetic fascination. This is visitors report to building, to building C. C. So I think that's and Lulu, did you have a feeling about this business of any sort before you went and visited? Yeah, there's a part of me that that wondered, like, oh, I totally love these creatures, this big bad company just exploiting it for their blood. And, you know, I, I went with a little skepticism. Oh, the doorbell? Great. Thanks. Uh, you know, an eyebrow down and scrunched. So the bleeding facility was just in this kind of understated, nondescript office park land. There's like people in capri pants and sandals. Basically from the outside, it looks like every other one-story brick building. Woo! But then when you go on the inside... Suddenly you're hit with this like... I can smell it! ...wash of a smell of crabs. Yes, indeed. Oh. Hey, wow. That smell, how would you describe that smell? Kind of crab mist. Yeah. It's a high ceiling, brightly lit room with industrial sinks along one wall, these shiny metal operating trays on wheels. And no matter where we were standing, we just sort of managed to, to be Do you mind if I just... like exactly oh, you need us out of the way. in the way, I don't want to be in your way though. of all these busy people rushing around. People are in lab coats, they're wearing hairnets. Got gloves on. And they're pushing around these big gray bins on wheels. And inside each bin are the horseshoe crabs. Twisting and turning a little, waving their tails. All heaped on top of each other, about 20 per bin. Flexing their claws. So uh, we have our crabs coming in from our supplier. That's Brad Parrish, our guide. <clears throat> he explained to us that there are two parts to the blood donation. We start by washing the animals. Scrub the shell. Pop the barnacles off. They spray it. Dunk it. Buff it. And the it of which you speak are living animals? Yeah, like one at a time. These smooth shells are passed person to person, rinsed and shining. It's like Wonka land for crabs in here. It's like a <laughs> yeah. whole world. Yeah. yeah. Once they're washed, it's time for the bleeding. 16 crabs wheeled over, gonna go in. Crabs are taken out of their bins, folded in half. So their tails are kind of underneath. Then they're put on these racks where they're strapped down with a bungee cord to hold them in place. And then they're wheeled into this tent, which is like a clean room zone that's like like got these sort of like plastic curtains all around. Oh, can we go? Can we go in? We cannot go in. Oh, we can't go in. Okay, got it. And they didn't let us go in there because, as regular bacteria-carrying humans, we were far too dirty to enter this super super clean room. But we could peek right in. And when we did, we saw that right at that fold in the crab's body... Right at that hinge, there's like a little opening and the needle goes in there. And it was from that needle that this blood... This like brilliant, yeah, kind of sci-fi, sky blue blood... Was slowly dripping into these glass bottles. And the crabs are kind of like... Their little claws are going, but they just kind of look like they're sitting there. And they're draining them of about a third of their blood. What is your uh, emotional sense of this scene? Like, it was kind of this, oh, feeling some sort of, like, what we're doing here is weird and kind of vampire-y. I don't know. It was like we're sucking their blood. So it was a little, it was a little creepy. Like, when, so lots of, like, I feel like when we were in there, mm. there's like so many. We were in the factory. Dozens and dozens of boxes filled each with like 
10 huge crabs. And we we are in the, yeah, in that processing zone. And before we went and saw the blood, this like may sound cheesy, but it was actually profound and I keep thinking about it. There was this moment. Okay, so here we, okay, what are we looking at? Can I touch her? When one of the guys in the factory. Oh, you're sure you can. Had pulled out from these bins, this big female horseshoe crab. Okay. Oh yeah, do you want to knock? Yeah, I do. And he's just sort of holding her by the shell. Hi. Oh, whoa. Hi. The tail is really coming right at me here. Yeah, so her little, her claws are going up and her tail's kind of waving around. Right, so if There's a lot your... of, ha- uh, yeah, claw activity. Exactly, and so he'll take these claws. And he, like, turned her over so she's upside down, and then he took his hand and just let her claws kind of grab his hand. And so that, they're sort of pinching my hands here, but it doesn't Does hurt. hurt. There's, there's not much power to them. They're just using that to sort of grab the food Can I try? and bring it into their mouth. Yeah. Can I get a little pinch? Yep. Yeah. And so I just kind of slowly stuck my hand out toward her claws. Oh. And her claws like engulfed my hand. Oh, here I'm Oh, they're very, cla- yeah, they're very, it's very claspy. It wasn't a scrabbly kind of like foreign a touch, they all the claws clasped in unison really tight. It's actually kind of... It's kind of a massage, right? (laughs) So I am being like, this horseshoe crab is is holding my hand. (laughs) Wow. To me, and of course this is just silly projecting, so I'm saying that, (laughs) but like, it felt like I know it wasn't, but it felt like a communication, like I'm in this bin and these people are doing weird things and I want to be back in the sea and I'm upside down and I'm about to go into like have a sink you know one of those like shower heads sprayed all up in my undersides and then I'm going to be bungee corded and drained like it was almost it wasn't like it was in pain but I had this almost like primal creature to creature help me yeah like I mean part of me felt that too uh but I mean, on the other hand, like, they, they do get to go home afterwards. So the same fishermen that bring the crabs to us are then going to deliver them back to the ocean and release them. They're set free. Straight back to the water. And how many crabs do they do this to every year? Uh, about 500,000 uh, horseshoe crabs every year get blood. Do the crabs that get bled and then released, I mean, do, do they just sw- swim away fine? or do so, they... so some of them do die after the bleeding. Huh. There's a, a, a small percentage. Like, I think the conservative estimate is around, like, 10%. Um, but that might be a high estimate or it might be a low estimate. I, I have no I, idea. I think it's so, 15, so, 15%. Okay, so let's say, like, 15%. So if you're talking about 500,000 crabs being bled every year, that that, that means about 75,000 horseshoe crabs are dying because of bleeding every year. Uh, you know, they actually, in that original paper that I looked at... Again, Alexis Madrigal. They were actually able to see that a lot of the, the crabs don't have, like, bled crabs and non-bled crabs, like, have slightly different movement patterns. Um, and that's because, you know, maybe one of them is missing 30% of its blood. But they needed to uh, they needed to double check on that, and so they did see that the bled animals appear more lethargic. They move, you know, uh, more slowly. And like, imagine if imagine if you had to go like harvest deer and then bleed them of thirty percent of their blood, and then you'd like leave them back out in the forest. Like, there's something about that yeah. that seems so bizarre. Yeah. It seems very medieval. Is there any hope of getting out of this whole vampire relationship we have with the horseshoe crabs? Well, perhaps. And let me tell you a brief story about a bird. A smallish bird, cinnamon in color, with a long bill. It's called a red knot. Now, the incredible thing about red knots is of all the birds in the world, the red knot makes one of the longest migrations, nearly 10,000 miles. They go from the very southern tip of South America all the way up to northern, northern Canada, up into the Arctic Circle where they lay their eggs. And the whole journey takes about five months. And what happens is thousands of these red knot birds will take off from South America. They'll fly like 4,000 miles north up to Brazil, and they'll stop there for just like a couple days, rest up, eat some food. And then the thousands of them take the skies again, and they fly up along the eastern coast of South America over the Atlantic Ocean. But before they get to their final nesting grounds, they make one more stop, one pivotal 
crucial rest stop in the Delaware Bay. Now, when I was in Delaware, there weren't like a ton of birds there, but basically these birds, when they make this journey, they rely on horseshoe crabs because... Yeah, well, look, you, I don't know if you've been noticing all the eggs. They need to eat millions of horseshoe crab eggs to complete their migration. Oh! This is an egg cluster right oh, that's, there. Oh, There's wow. another one. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm so going to we'll be way, really careful where I step now. And this is the thing. It's weirdly these birds that might actually free the horseshoe crabs from us. Yeah. And to explain, I got in touch with this guy. Uh, my name is Jay Bolden. A biologist. In the Global Quality Laboratories at Eli Lilly and Company. So Eli Lilly and Company, it's this huge pharmaceutical company that makes, you know, cancer drugs and antidepressants. A lot of insulin and things like that. And real quick. People are at the core of our commitment to manufacturing. Here's a message from an executive. And the driving force behind our innovation. Radiolab is brought to you by... Anyway, um... One of the things the company's been helping innovate is... Horseshoe crab blood. A synthetic version of horseshoe crab blood. Yeah, so... And, you know, Jay explained to me, if you kind of, like, zoom out for a second and think about what it means to use horseshoe crab blood for this, you know, vital thing in medicine... The problem is there needs to be a supply of horseshoe crabs. And, you know... Global warming. Global warming. Climate change is real. Rising sea levels, habitat loss. That could have some supply chain consequences. Which isn't good. No. And so it was actually all the way back in 1997. Some researchers out of the University of Singapore cloned this the factor C protein. The essential factor C protein in horseshoe crab blood that goes bloop, 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 around the bad bacteria. And now we can make the protein of interest instead of getting that directly from horseshoe crabs. Huh. So why aren't we already using that? Yeah, so the problem well, Jay explained that there's, you know, a whole bunch of different reasons. But one of the big ones was that you already had an industry built on horseshoe crab blood. And so there was no real immediate incentive to change, which is actually how we get back to. They're coming. They're coming. Our good friends, the birds. So it turns out people like these birds a lot, like actually way more than horseshoe crabs. But since the birds eat the horseshoe crab eggs, their fate is kind of entwined. So, like, if the horseshoe crab is not doing well, then the bird's not going to do well. And so... Jay figured, why don't I just go around to all the bird conservationists? To use some of their political power and contacts. And it's only now that we're starting to come upon... A new dawn. So good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome here. This is a great place to be today. In May of 2018, Jay was standing on a stage along with some conservationists to announce that Eli Lilly would be one of the first companies to use synthetic horseshoe crab blood. The big headline news here is that the pharmaceutical industry can actually replace probably up to 90% of the use of horseshoe crab blood without incurring any major regulatory change. Which means these horseshoe crabs can finally be freed of their servitude and bondage to mankind and get back to doing... Is that a threesome? What is going on here? A little, a little orgy. What they love. It's a big orgy. It's a big orgy. <laughs> well, but here's the weird thing. I think, like, if the synthetic comes through and we get it perfect and it works and we never have to drain another horseshoe crab, then they just become these weird kind of sea spiders again. And that... That could be a really bad thing for them. Yeah, exactly. This is actually something that Alexis Madrigal talks about, too. Because most of the other things that these horseshoe crabs have ever been used for in the history of their encounter with humans has resulted in the death of, like, large numbers of them. Because before we ever valued them for their blood... We basically did two things with them. Thing one? We'd turn them into a fertilizer. We would catch them, boil them. And grind them, and then just stick them in the soil as a way of promoting plant growth. Or thing two, we'd catch them, cut them up, and use them to like uh, as bait to catch uh, more valuable species, like uh, particular kinds of snails. Okay, so I have right here in front of me. This comes from the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which their numbers say that you know, uh, as of the late '90s, there were nearly three million horseshoe crabs being killed every year for commercial fishing. Three million. Wow. 
But more recently, we've put restrictions on how many horseshoe crabs can be used for commercial fishing, for bait. Um, it's even like in a lot of states, it's a crime to go to a beach and just take a, uh, you know, a bunch of horseshoe crabs. Like in New Jersey, if you take a horseshoe crab, you could get fined $10,000. The thing that I've always wanted to keep in mind with this is like, if you're going to have to be, you know, hooked up to some economic system, which most animals in our world are, you kind of want to be hooked up to one that's super high value and that doesn't kill you. And so the fear is, if, like, if the synthetic works and we no longer need horseshoe crabs for their precious blood, then we just go back to chopping them up, putting them in the ground and using them for bait. Because they live where we live. They live along our most populous shore, and they're right there for the taking. You know, they're not prepared for our murderous impulse. Hi, I'm Latif. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you, Thanks too. for having us here. Yeah, more than glad this to. And there was this moment where everything just kind of flipped for me, you know, like where I realized that as cruel and kind of grisly as the draining of the blood seems, that actually may be the best thing for these creatures. Like our selfishness may be protecting them. Well, you want to see some more horseshoe crabs? Yes. 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 So this was our very last stop on our trip down to South Carolina. And we met this fisherman named Jerry Galt who is employed to collect horseshoe crabs for the company. What a peaceful little spot. So we were in this forest. Yeah, I know. This feels like the most secluded place in the world. With Jerry walking around this little pond. I wore the exactly wrong shoes. I know, me too. I just wore the wrong thing. What's known as a holding pond, where they put the crabs before they go off to the facility. And while we were down there... Oh, what you got there? Jerry, like, scooped some water out of the pond. That's just a bottle of water. No, it's more than... But then he held the bottle up to our faces. See the babies? <gasps> oh, they're tiny. Oh, all of those? Mm-hmm. Every, oh, wow, there's so many of them. How many? Oh, yeah, they do um, 100,000 eggs a season. Wow. They're, yeah, they're like the size of a, like a really round grain of rice. They're <laughs> kind of like pearled couscous. Pearled couscous is yeah. great. Are they, the, like, are they, were they laying the eggs here or, or, or did you... No, Get no, the they, eggs from the they, where they you lay their eggs along the shore. Oh, right along this bit this, of shore here. Uh-huh. So they'll spawn yeah. even. Oh, literally right, right here. Oh, that's oh wow. So cool. Well, so so and uh, I feel like we heard a tiny bit about, but what, what's the what's the story of how you went from or your family went from being kind of seafood, uh, you know, right. fishermen to 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 doing this kind of crazy different thing? Well, we're just a bunch of fishermen with ADD. But Jerry told us uh, the gist of it is back when his dad was doing seafood fishing. You know, I was just a tyke. Then I was in this 70s. His dad was catching a lot of horseshoe crabs, selling them off for bait. And then one day this guy just showed up at his house, suit and tie. Told my dad that if he would quit selling them for bait, he'd, you know, he'd make a deal for him. He would buy them. Buy them for more money. So Jerry's dad said, sure. We've been doing it ever since. And, so, and, but I, I got something I want you guys to know. As a fisherman, I'm proud to be part of it. I find it to be, I want to say, it's the most noble thing I do because I get to touch every one of you guys because it's used for making sure medication is, is safe for us. And can't say that about soft-shell crabs or, right. or gr- grouper, you know. Yeah, you touch every one and then you touch it again and return yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I touch you, yeah, indirectly. Every, every, indirectly, every, I'm touching all of us here because we're all part of it. So it's a pretty neat thing. If you had to describe your feelings for the crabs, for the horseshoe crabs, uh, how do you feel about them? Well, I have a lot of respect for them, and I almost feel like it's um, divine design. The horseshoe crab is. You know, I've seen them fishing for them. You know, they're a nuisance then. And now I see them on this side where they're important to human society. And um, that just draws me back to the idea that it's, it was a divine design. They've been around for 400 million years. It took, them this, took us this long to figure it out, I guess. Out of curiosity, where did that where did that leave the two of you? Well, well, for me, I mean, Jerry, the the fisherman, he's 
he's totally right. Like, we we just figured this out. These crabs have been Clark Kenting us this whole <laughs> time. They, they have this hard-won superpower that they've probably had since, you know, before, like, three branches on our evolutionary tree. And... And and in evolutionary terms, like like they're the winners. We're the we're we're chumps. Mm. We're we're baby chumps. Yeah, and they're just like there is something miraculous inside them. And and in a certain way, it's easy to stand next to them and feel almost small. Like that we're not unlike an asteroid or just another thing they're probably gonna endure. Like we are a blip to them. And yet we're a dangerous blip, and and in a weird way, like people, the people we met down here, the people doing this work, this blood harvesting work, in a way came to represent the best way to treat the crabs. That's right, exactly. Treat them like eggs. There are these rules in place to make sure that the horseshoe crabs are only picked up by hand, and you can't pick them up by the tail. Because you can injure the, the muscle and the tail. We keep them covered when we transport them. Like they're also on a time clock. We've got to get them back as quick as possible. They have to be back to the ocean within 24 hours. When they get to the lab... We give it a manicure, pedicure. Each one gets scrubbed clean by hand. And then they borrow some blood from it, and I bring it back and let it go. And he showed us how he returns them to the water, and he, like, he built this freaking water slide. Slide to go down. To do it more gently. No, now we pick them up, set them into this slide, and the water takes them down to the river. Before, we used to pick them up and toss them. And we've gotten away from tossing them. It's amazing. I got a slide on my dock, 200 foot long water slide, where they rehydrate on their way to the river. See how fast they pull those their way down? Yes. You don't want to get your finger caught in there. Do they squeeze up? Yeah. You want to hold it? Yeah, sure. Ready? So this is the male. That's the male. Okay. The female's always And we bigger. just interrupted his embrace. No, his game. Well, his cuddling. Okay, so that was the story that we made back in 2018. This is me now in the present. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there have been some coronavirus-related news happenings in the world of the horseshoe crab, and Latif and I recently sat down to talk about it. So it has been... It's been two years since we did that story about horse crabs. Two and years? Oh, my God. Yeah. That feels like yesterday. I know. Um, so we we did that story. It was about this, like, magical, super sensitive stuff that we take from their blood that we actually, I don't know how we managed to do this. We never even named it in the story. It's called LAL. Huh. Um, but I called up Dr. James Fenimore Cooper. Hello. Who is the guy who's been, you know, working on this basically since the 60s. Just to say, like, what is new given everything that's going on in the world right now? Tell me the story of LAL in the in the time of COVID. What what uh, how is how is it being used? What's going on? Well, that's a good question. Of course, uh, the FDA will require the LAL reagent to be used to test all of the uh, vaccine batches that are produced. That's required for every vaccine uh, right now. So you're saying that uh, no matter which one gets there first or, uh, you know, however many get there first, they're all going to have to sort of as one of the final stages, they're all going to have to pass an LAL test. Is that right? Yes. Huh. Yeah. But that doesn't even that's not even the extent of it for the vaccine. So even before they make the vaccines, Dr. Cooper says they have to test all of their ingredients of the formulation, their waters, their salts, their buffers. Wow. And then not only that, it doesn't even end there. Uh, In some cases, they also test the packaging. So like the glass vials. And according to Dr. Cooper, they're like, that's already happening. So, uh, uh, like, I imagine uh, somewhere there's, you know, just vials sitting that are just like horseshoe crab approved, and they're just waiting for their big moment. Like, they're just <laughs> waiting to be filled up and, you know, shipped out. But that's amazing. Are there other ways that LAL has been used, like, f- for this epidemic in particular, besides the vaccine? Well, it will have been used to test every medicine that is being injected and used to screen all the devices 
needles and syringes, IV lines and things like that. It's used to test that. So imagine this. Okay. So imagine you're walking into a hospital, you have symptoms, you test positive for COVID-19. What happens after that? Right? So maybe doctor takes your blood, uh, syringe used to do that, uh, to run whatever blood test, the syringe used to, to take your blood that's been tested with LAL before it left the factory. Mm. Let's say you get hooked up to IV fluids. Uh, those IV fluids would also be horseshoe crab approved, as would be the IV bag, the tubes, the catheter going into your vein. Let's say worst case scenario, you need to go on a ventilator. The tube going down your throat, uh, that at site of where it was manufactured, that would have also had to be tested with the with. LAL with the blood of a horse crab. Wow. And it is true, I should say, that there are some certain companies like Eli Lilly that are in the process of making the switch to the synthetic version, recombinant factor C, but uh, but LAL is still the standard. Holy moly. So it's like it's like it's everywhere. Wow. Super impressive. Um but then there's another sort of little bell that's ringing in my head which is like, "Oh no." Like, that means we're going to need a lot of extra horseshoe crab blood to do all this. Right. Like, on the supply side, given that there are so many vaccines in development, given that, won't it just use up a ton of the of the LAL? Well, a number of months ago, the three major LAL producers got together and uh, came up with a scenario that if they made 5 billion doses, Doses of vaccine, you mean? Yeah. Vaccine, yeah. Uh, how much LAL would that uh, require? And their calculations show that it would re- require a couple of days production. And then I made a second calculation yesterday, and uh, uh, and I used 10 times as much LAL as they calculated, and I found out it still wouldn't use 1% of their inventory. Whoa. That's uh, that's that's reassuring. <laughs> I know. I was about to say it's like in a in a in a in a minefield of of bad and terrible news. It's, it's sort of a, it's like just a, a kind of okay. This thing under control. Got it yes, covered. That's right. So I was like, I was like, what? I was like, this is not the like even the toilet paper people. When you talk to them, they're like, you know, this is a really hard time, but we're gonna make it work. Like the supply chain is really like we're we got to And these guys are like, nah, no big deal. Uh, we got it. Are they bleeding um, more than they need to bleed? Like what? What that seems. So they have said no. They have said no. Uh, like, and it's kind of the scale that they're working on because they do so much for so many things over such a big industry. The sort of the scale of it is such that, um, like it's already it's already so big a scale and it's already so efficient a test that it's like a drop in the bucket. I see. Got That's it. That's the claim. I just I'm suddenly asking myself questions about the baseline scale at which they operate. I'm like, yeah. what are they? That, how, how is that possible? How is that possible? Like, you have do yeah. they have warehouses full of that blue blood? Yeah, just in case, like, yeah. Uh, well, well, it is it is a pretty important. Like, I I don't know if that's the case. I can find out. My my guess would be because it's such a crucial thing. I would imagine that they're like. The, just anticipating any problems and the fact that it's like written into the regulations that literally medicines need this thing. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, like it's like you need to have this much in a warehouse because because it's so important. Uh, that's like, interesting. That would be my guess, but I could look into that more. I le- that's really interesting because, I mean, it was it reminds me of the very beginning when uh, you, you were hearing all these reports about um, – how many masks the government had in its re- in its reservoir, which was like, oh, yeah. I didn't realize that there was somebody who was putting masks in the robot. That seems so super smart. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I, of course, there's horseshoe blood in the reservoir. Yeah. So, okay. So that's how, that's the company's sort of perspective. But then there's the question of like, how are the horseshoe crabs doing actually? In the two years since we've run that story, like what what's the status of the horseshoe crabs? So, um there has been, so we quoted in the story, there's this thing, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Uh, it's like basically a government survey. Uh, one came out last year, 2019. Uh, they found that across the whole eastern seaboard of the United States, um, the population of horseshoe crabs is remaining stable. And then basically in the south, it's actually doing, and I'm going to quote the technical term here, uh, good. 
Um, so <laughs> they, uh, uh, after we, after we overfished them for basically a century and a half, they're doing, they're doing all right. And, and to me, there's something kind of profound about that. Uh, cause like right at this moment where they're jumping in extra to save us, like, it's nice to know that we are, we are sort of saving them too. This piece was reported by Latif Nasser with help from Damiano Marchetti and, of course, Lulu Miller, and was produced by Annie McEwen and Matt Kielty with help from Liza Yeager. Thanks to Lakia Wimbish and everyone at Lonza's Global Endotoxins Testing Summit, Mike Kendrick and Brad Floyd of the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, also Tamara Ann Hull at Eli Lilly, and, of course, Kate Contreras, John Dubcheck, and the rest of the team at Charles River. I'm Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening. To play the message, press 2. Start of message. Hey, it's Alexis Madrigal. Hey, this is Lulu. Calling you from a foggy area. That was my voice on the machine. I had no idea that was still there. Radio Lab was created by Jad Boomrod and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keith is our director of sound design. Maria Matasad Padilla is our managing director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hopke, Tracy Hunt, who is so fun on Twitter, Matt Kilty, Robert Colwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Erin Wack, Pat Walters, and, and Molly the Web, Web, Webster. With help from Shima Olivai. Shima Ole, yeah, Shima Oleli. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. You would think I could have done that better. Thanks, guys. Since I've been working in radio for a decade and a half. Bye. Bye. End of message. <laughs> Waiting on a text message from Lulu Miller. Waiting on a text message from Lulu Miller. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Um, hang up the phone. You should still be there. Hi. Beautiful. Um, so, uh, word on the street is Just you have a story. Me to read mm-hmm. I do <laughs> I do have a story I, I think my levels are okay um, I have a really weird horseshoe crab deep dive so you have to pretend you have to like really channel me speaking like a kind of Jersey dude like I picture that this voice is like a, a, a Jersey kind of Tony Soprano voice <laughs> Great. but I'm Are not going to try, try to voice? imitate okay. it okay? <laughs> okay but like go there in your I will I will be translating it into that voice in my head okay okay all right, all right. so it's called me and Jane <clears throat> there's nothing finer than the feel of Jane suckling algae from my back if that sounds gross just imagine how it would feel for a moment a fine horseshoe crab like Jane Climbing up onto your shell, nibbling and scraping around to remove this past week's failures and setbacks and scabs. A glittering cascade of unsuctioning all over your shell. Flipsies, she'd say when her work was complete. My turn. Sorry, I'm uh, short of breath. This is a pregnancy curse, but I'll just, there might be some breaths you're going to have to take out. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I didn't even notice. It sounded great. Okay, good. Flipsies, she'd say when her work was complete. My turn. And I'd climb back up onto her back, chew around a bit, pop a few barnacles off, but I never really did that great of a job for two reasons. One, I am a bit lazy. Two, after years of being a bit lazy and allowing my Jane's shell to become encrusted in salt scabs, algae, barnacles, and more than a few muscles, I've come to find it all quite beautiful. The whole stinking mess is a topographical record of our history. When I say this to Jane, she rolls all nine of her eyes, but I mean it. That patch of black algae on her ophthalmic ridge, that appeared the night last spring when we spawned under a new moon, which is, of course, no moon at all. That white gunk near her tail, from a nap in the mud, the actual remnant of a cuddle, or those barnacles on her backside, I know the very day they latched on. It was on our trip up to Maine to see the tide pools, Jane had been scared of going, scared of black bears or humans or yada, yada, yada. I cut in and told her those were just myths perpetuated by fearful crabs with too much goddamn time on their hands. Life is for living, I told her as I thrust her into the Gulf Stream, and boy, what a time we had. 
We soaked in tide pools. We lay out in the sun, Jane picking away at my back while I walked her through my idea for a starfish novel. The barnacles must have suctioned onto her somewhere between the boyhood stargazing scene, spooky starfish star resonance, and the seagull attack scene. Even if I hadn't been too exhausted from my fit of inspiration to work on her barnacles that night, I doubt I would have been able to pry them off. As they proved the next morning under that glaring main sun, they were as hard as rock. Oh well. Without these spots, I fear I'd forget that life would become a wash. I whisper these kinds of things to Jane when she seems ashamed of her little green beard or when she's sluggish from her kelp tails pulling in the tide. These stains and scabs are the particulars of our experience, I tell her. They are our memories, made physical, a record forged in desiccating sea stink of our love. I mean, it's not that I don't appreciate a smoother shell when I see one, Jefferson's wife, for example, it is hard not to notice her swimming by, her shell turgid with the strain of perfection. And if you happen to be on shore when she comes up for air, watch out. It is almost like an optical illusion, water on water, a hump of liquid emerging from itself. What I'd give to reach out with the tiny hairs in my most private of spots, my nathobasis, and run them along her shell. Oh, but still, you couldn't pay me to trade places with Jefferson. While I'm off on a fish carcass bender with the guys or having a quiet morning to myself going mollusk hunting, Jefferson is at home in that same damn ditch tending to his wife. All day long, he picks and buffs and scrapes and scrubs, washing away her every residue. She won't even tolerate a bit of salt buildup. It was a simpler existence with my Jane, my old barnacled gal. More free. Lately, though, I have to admit I've been feeling restless. We're not fighting at all. We're still very much able to make each other laugh, but... I feel as though big things within me are becoming uneasy. I mentioned something along the lines of this to Jane about a week ago, but she assured me it was nothing, just physical, time to molt. But the moon proved her wrong. The brightening moon and the descent of thousands of new horseshoe crabs on the cove. It's the spawn! Of course, the upcoming spawn must be what's triggering this uneasiness in my gut. Because while the first part is lovely... There is nothing like the feel of your pedipalps out in the ocean holding onto the edge of Jane's shell with your grippers 10,000 other crabs clacking so hard around you it sometimes induces a sea steam. What happens afterwards is unsettling. Something strange comes over everybody. Jefferson is no longer high-strung Jefferson. His wife no longer a prima donna. Frank, who's always been kind of weird and lonely, seems okay. Everybody is lifted from their selves, or rather ourselves seem to lift from our bodies and leave us. We become one without our peculiarities, a giant 10,000 clawed being. As we fall asleep that night, thousands of us sinking into the cool mud all at once, a kind of communal dream takes place, and we awake united. We share food, take turns guarding the eggs, drop our suspicions of one another. We are an efficient machine of a species without the drag of the individual. I think there could be a book in this, a sort of anti-Hardinian treatise, The Promise of the Commons. Imagine a completely selfless species, what good we could do, how quickly we could rise. But, alas, curse of us creatures unable to change a thing about ourselves since the dinosaurs. We can never get this elevated state to last any longer than a couple of weeks. It ends instantaneously with the hatch. Once we've watched as tiny versions of us, smaller than clams with little button tails, disappear into the surf, the collective conscious begins to decay. Ourselves float back down into our shells, and we feel that familiar itch again of loneliness, a self confined irrevocably to its own body. That's when we become assholes again, and dickheads, and self-serious know-it-alls. And so my hunch, I tell Jane, is that this strange gurgling in my gut is some kind of quantum vertigo. 
Yeah, that's it. Quantum vertigo. Myself longing to be set free into the ether where it can leap and spin and do whatever it is selves do up there. And dastardly old me. This collection of hard shell and claws desperate to keep it inside. But no. Jane was right. It was just time to molt. Ha! She said after she heard the telltale rumble from underneath my prosoma. Poor old crab, thinking he's the next political theorist, stirring with ideas, when really it was just a case of skeletal indigestion. I whipped her with my tail. Shut up. She was about to respond, but a clattery burp came out instead. Ha! I said. Mutual, mutual molting, Jane sighed. Splendid. As we readied ourselves for the process... There's not much you can do but stand there and take it. I realized something. What timing, I said to Jane. We'll have fresh bodies just in time for the spawn, pristine shells. I thought you liked my incrustations, said Jane, staring out at the sea. I I do, I gulped. My darling, of course I do. It was right around then that she started to split. Her head started craning forward, and I watched, nauseated and thrilled, as a bigger, wetter version of her began sliding out. It took hours, this arduous process of slipping out of yourself. But when she finally emerged, she was a sight to behold, like Jane, but gleaming and massive. I better go, she said. I know, I whispered. The soft and jelly-like new Jane would need to find a secluded place to hide as her shell hardened. Shall I find you in our spot? Sure, she said, and began to slowly, carefully step away. I lay down next to her old body in the sand. It was almost like laying with her any old day, that trusty silence of her listening. But with her shell completely empty now, that familiar pattern of barnacles took on a frightening weight. Something about them made me feel very worried, but I couldn't tell you what. Eventually, I too found my shell splitting. It wasn't the easiest of molts. I'll spare you the gory details, but let's just say the old me didn't want to let the new me through, and it made its reluctance known with a deep gash down my back. But at last I emerged, bloodied and gelatinous. I limped to some bushes nearby. There I waited as my back began to harden. Through the brambles, I had a good view of our old shells, lying side by side in the sand, two little humps in front of the sea. I gazed at us for hours as the moon slid across the sky. There was me, the old me, a shiny little dome reflecting the moon's journey in miniature. And there was Jane, the old Jane, a body so carpeted in weeds and stone that she reflected only us. I awakened to legs, human ones, swishing by my brambles. The rubber pads on its feet make horrible squeaking noises. I get low. The legs halt for a moment and then run over to the old Jane and the old me. The creature, a little one for a human, yanks old me by the tail and brings me up to his head. I watch as it studies my private underside, then turns me over and places me back down, thank God, right where I had been in the sand. It runs its strange hand along my smooth shell. It turns to examine old Jane. Her sweet fuzz, her barnacles, our life. Her shell cracks under the rubber pad of its foot, cracks into a thousand pieces. Little bastard dares to pick old me up again, and all I can do is watch from my brambles as it runs away with me, as it runs away with my past self, dragging it ruthlessly down the shore. The spawn has come and gone. I looked everywhere for Jane, waiting by our spot, calling her name into the clacking shells. Nothing. Now, I spend most evenings underwater with Frank, weird Frank, awaiting her return. The fish won't stop nibbling at my molting wound. I can feel flatworms burrowing into my back. I ask Frank to help me clean it, but he spits muscles and tells me I've got to be kidding. My shell is growing itchy with grit. I don't know if it's sand or barnacles or what. This afternoon, 
I simply stood before the undertow and called her name into its haunting screams. Jane! Jane! Frank tells me to shut up about my starfish novel. Everyone does a coming-of-age starfish novel, he says. I mean, write the damn thing if you want. Just please stop talking about it. As I sit with him, algae sprouting on my lip, I rethink the value of a self. Screw the promise of the collective. I think sometimes one self can be a pretty good thing. A self like a Jane, for instance. I keep getting hit with shards of grit that, instead of bouncing off my shell, now get caught in my kelp tangles. I feel sluggish, unwieldy, in constant pain. I think on past selves, that smooth old me. What is a self, anyway? What endures? With the soul a thing of question and my body now long gone, is it even continuous? I have the distinct sense, though Jane would tell me this is magical thinking, that the old me is off somewhere on the mainland, near that little human creature. I can picture that clean old shell of mine drying out near some flower pots, being occasionally sniffed at by an idiotic canine with a sloppy tongue. Yes, I'm sure of it, though Jane would scrunch up all nine of her eyes and say, of course you're sure of it, you're making it up. The old me is preserved in pristine form on the mainland, while the smashed shards of my sweet old Jane, encrusted in the very stuff of our love, disintegrate into the sea. Perhaps it's little bits of her that are sticking to me now. <laughs> There's my horseshoe crabs. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's really nice. Yeah. It was really so. nice to listen to while lying on the floor here. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> that's lovely. Um, I I didn't. I had no idea you had such an affection for horseshoe crabs before all this began, before the story began. <laughs> The, yeah. the holding hand the holding hand scene makes a lot a lot of sense i mean it made <laughs> sense in the moment listening yeah. to it but even with this context it makes more sense now